0: You're listening to The Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet.
1: I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of The Bible for Normal People. Oh, boy, do we have a treat for you today. We're talking about, does hell exist?
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Does it?
1: You You have to listen to find out. You'll find find out. out. I mean, you won't, No,
0: you're going to get the answer, actually, within the first, like, two minutes, and it will shock you, (laughs) as they say on the interwebs.
1: Just click here to find out more.
0: <laughs> that is sort of a hell, isn't it? I think it's true. All that stuff. So, anyway, yeah, our guest is uh, Megan Henning, and she is a professor of Christian origins at the University of Dayton. So, she deals with stuff like before the time of Jesus, during, and a little bit after, just the rise of Christianity. And she's done a lot of thinking about hell.
1: And just the best of. I, I love. You'd never having guess these... at talking
0: to her, though, right? She's I, sort I of happy. love
1: having these like nerdy. Scholars on who really just they all they want to do is just dig into yeah, texts and right. find out that I just really appreciate that level of hey
0: man honest scholarship Bible for normal people that's what we do right yeah. we talk about this stuff have nerds on and we keep going that's you know, right so.
1: excellent all right one more thing it's very important very so important listen up. listen up every once in a while we like to do these uh courses online where Pete and I jump on we tackle a topic and this time we're going to be talking about how to read the Bible. As adults But Jared How much does it cost? It costs $5,000. If you want to. If you want to.
0: It's a pay what you want course, So it folks. could cost you nothing. Could cost you nothing.
1: Uh, you know, nor- If normally, you're not a
0: capitalist, you'll just
1: show up. Normally we have these courses for, you know, $49, $99, something like that, but no human's going to be turned away. We really want to just inc- continue to have this dialogue and conversation about what the Bible is, what do we do with it. So we're going to be having this course uh, March 26th. So write it down on your calendar, like right now, unless you're driving— But otherwise, write down, March 26th, 8.30 Eastern Time. So from 8.30 to 9.30, we're going to be talking about how to read the Bible as an adult. We're going to be talking about its ancientness, its diversity, its ambiguousness, how to be flexible with it, um, diving into um, wisdom and some other topics. So, we hope you can join us. If you would uh, be interested in registering for that, just go to thebiblefornormalpeople.com front slash how to read the Bible. You can sign up there, pay what you want. We'll see you March 26th at 8.30 p.m. Eastern, Eastern Time. Eastern
0: Time. Don't forget Eastern
1: Time. For yeah. Excellent. All right. Well, let's have this conversation with Megan hitting on hell. If we think about
2: the ethical commands that are tied to this. The conclusion that we draw is that if there is a hell, we're all going. But if we think about this as rhetoric that Jesus is really quite serious about and trying to drive home, what we find is that the emphasis in these texts is really on care for the other, concern for the marginalized, and that theme is still carried forward. Even the earliest readers of these texts understood on some level that the real point here is how you treat others.
1: Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing.
0: And just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code normal people. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code normal people for 30% off and free shipping. microdose.com. Promo code normal people. Well, Megan, how are you? Thanks for being on the podcast.
2: Thank you. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Yeah, absolutely. A lot of interesting stuff to talk about today. Before we get to that, let's just hear a bit about your background, how you got into this, your sure. your spiritual uh, background, and maybe why you even went and got a PhD, which probably sounded like a good idea at the time.
2: <laughs> it's Everyone's doing it. Yes. <laughs> <really>. um, <laughs> I grew up in a Lutheran family. And in the Midwest. And when I was in high school, um, my family went through a lot of trauma. And through that time, I noticed quite quickly that the people around me were doing their best to try to support my family with the use of scripture. But in some cases, they were actually really helpful, and in other cases, not so helpful. And the thing that was really interesting to me at that point was how. People could be reading the exact same text, but in one case interpreted in a way that maybe made my family feel bad about our situation, um, and in other cases really come alongside my family and support us. So that really got me interested from a young age in what it meant to interpret a biblical text and what role the interpreter had and how scripture could be either a positive force in someone's life or something that was um, even scary. So, um, that led me on a somewhat winding path to get a, a PhD in biblical studies and, and New Testament, and then I developed an interest in the history of early Christianity as well.
1: Well, that's really wonderful, and I appreciate that background. But <laughs> today, we really want to ask really just one question. Does hell exist? I mean, we, we really <laughs> that, brought you on because Pete and yeah. I have been wrestling with this for years. We really want to know. So, can you just give us the answer? This may yeah. be a really short podcast. Yeah.
2: Right. Uh, yeah, the answer is seven. No, um, <laughs> <laughs> the, the the question, how does hell exist, is really a, a modern question that we have um, for ancient texts that aren't asking that same question, right? Our scientific curiosity wants us to to try to just. Dis- to decide whether or not hell is really there or not. Uh, But the problem is that the texts that we're asking that question of, namely the the Bible, the readers of those texts would not have had, or the earliest readers of those texts would not have had that question. When they came across the descriptions of the weeping and gnashing of teeth in the Gospel of Matthew or the story in Luke 16 with um, the rich man and Lazarus, the question for them would not have been, oh, is that really a place? The question for them would have been, who's there and why are they there? Because that's the way that the culture that they were a part of understood reality.
1: So, we'll, we'll get back to this because what we really are hoping you can do for us is kind of trace this idea of hell. Oh. But before we do that, are, are, is what you're saying that the, mil, the milieu or the environment of the New Testament wouldn't would they have already assumed the existence of something like a hell? And so the question really isn't, does it exist? That's a The idea of existence and uh, is it really there, those are really modern questions. And in a lot of ways, there would have been a lot of assumptions in the ancient world about some of that. So they would have just asked the other questions like, who's there? Why are they there? Um, not so much, does it exist? Are you, are you saying in the New Testament, there would have been an assumption that... This place called hell does exist.
2: Whether or not they had an assumption that a place called hell existed, they would have already been familiar with um, ideas that sounded like the language that Jesus is using in the Gospels, that was already used in their broader culture to instruct people. So the idea really begins in the cultures that that are surrounding um, the New Testament writers. So we have in the Greco-Roman world we have the concepts of Hades and Tours to the Underworld. In We have in the Odyssey and Virgil's Aeneid, we have this idea of a going to Hades and on this journey to Hades, learning something that you bring back through this story about your journey to Hades to educate your audience. And even though the hearers of the New Testament might not have been literate or reading those stories, Those stories were so widely shared and told. They were a part of the Greek and Roman program of education called Paideia that was consistent and used with remarkable consistency across the empire. If we look at, for example, some of the um, school hands or educational texts that we have from antiquity, One of the things that's really remarkable that I found through my research is that the chapters of the Odyssey and the Aeneid, so Odyssey 11 and the Aeneid 6 that describe these tours um, to Hades, are some of the most frequently used texts in those school hands. And so what that tells us is that among the population that was literate, that was receiving an education, this story would have been widely familiar and would have been shared. So it was a part of the kind of understanding that you would tell these stories in order to educate audiences. And then, of course, Jewish apocalyptic literature, which is very popular during the lifetime of Jesus, has its own stories and journeys that are somewhat influenced by these Greco-Roman stories that I'm talking about, but also takes its own spin on this idea of touring otherworldly spaces and using graphic details about those otherworldly spaces to make a point and persuade audiences in the present.
0: Well, let's get to that, the point, what they're trying to do with all this in a bit. What what I hear you saying is that this idea of Hades, right? Mm -hmm. Or we might say hell just for argument's sake um a lot of that it's it's you know christianity is sort of dealing and engaging with the cultures around it which is both greek and roman influence mm-hmm. and it's it it's uh it's i mean it, it's maybe an obvious point but it's it's a product of engaging a particular culture and jews were doing this but these concepts were not part of their own Scripture, am I? Am I? Right, in so that's your opinion,
2: accurate. yeah, I did sort of jump over the Hebrew Bible. Sorry, well, that's so okay. We all do. I jumped straight to Jewish <laughs> apocalypticism. No, that's yeah. that's fine. But
1: so, I mean, yeah. that's a, a very common mistake for all of us. You I know? know. Old Testament, yes. no Jewish apocalypticism every yeah, day. Whatever. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Yeah. So, but, but I guess <laughs> so, my my
0: question is, I guess my point is that I'd like to see your comment on is that this is a foreign concept completely in the yes. old in the Hebrew scriptures, right?
2: Yes. Yeah, so the Hebrew scriptures have the concept of Sheol, which is not really a, what we would call a lively afterlife in the sense that it's described as dusty and dark. It's certainly not pleasant. It's not a place that you want to go, but everybody goes there when they die. So in the Hebrew Bible, there's this idea that, you know, when you die, you go to Sheol. And it is described in ways that, it's sometimes confusing to people because when they read the Hebrew Bible, it sounds like hell. And when the this translation of the Hebrew Bible was made to the Septuagint, they actually use the word Hades to translate Sheol. And so then that creates confusion for a lot of people because then that starts to overlap those two concepts. But really in the Hebrew Bible, it's a, a kind of a neutral place where everybody goes after death And the texts that describe it or talk about it do refer to it as a place that nobody wants to go, but that's because in the Hebrew Bible, there's this tradition of the two ways and this idea that um, one way leads to life and abundance and the other way leads to death. And so when, when these texts, Proverbs and Psalms are places where we see a lot of this language or in Deuteronomy, the Deuteronomist has a lot of language like this, these texts are describing not Shaol as a, a place that you don't want to go to um, because it signifies that you've done something wrong, but rather that um, to go to Sheol too soon would be to die prematurely. And so that is negatively valued and seen as a punishment from God, but it's not, um, it's not the idea of hell that we think of that gets developed centuries later well, by early Christians. It seems
1: like it's more of this, uh, it's an extension of the idea that you don't want to die young. Exactly. It, and, and Sheol's just, yeah, well, that's what happens when you die. And if you die young, mm-hmm. that's not a good thing. And so, it's... Yeah.
2: And you want to make choices that lead to a fruitful life
1: and a long life. Right. Not... Right. Exactly. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Uh, yeah,
0: that's, I mean, that's a really interesting point. And I think an important point to make that... This idea that I think a lot of Christians throughout history and today very much, you know, at least the people we talk to a lot, they just assume that this is a thoroughly biblical idea, this afterlife abode, which is a place of punishment, and even torture. And, and for some traditions. And
2: bodily torture. That's why I say that Sheol is not really a lively afterlife because it's not totally clear that people have bodies there. <laughs> right.
0: I mean, you really can't, you can't do anything in Sheol. You can't even no. praise God in Sheol. So, no. don't send me there, especially before my yeah. time. And wanting to avoid Sheol is not because I don't want to go to hell. It's because I have a lot more living to do. And exactly. I, I'd like you to allow me, don't let me go down into the pit or something. Don't let me go down right. Killed, exactly. Right? Yeah. Don't let me
2: go down into Shaol right, um, right. before my hairs are gray or something. So yeah, exactly. You want to live on Earth as long as possible, right. and that's a sign of God's favor and abundance in your life.
1: Right. So when we when we get to this, let's maybe move forward a little bit. So when we get to mm-hmm. the what's wrong with the Hebrew Bible, Jared? We like talking about that. <laughs> Jeez, man! I tell you. Okay, when go ahead. We get to this time period so the hebrew bible has been written we're kind of going through history here jesus is born around this time there's what you call you know this jewish apocalypticism so there's these Mm -hmm. writings and they're influenced by maybe some greek culture and the greek idea of hades what you know what how does it change because we just went through sheol which doesn't really give us a lot to go on but by the time we get to jewish apocalyptic literature There is, like, what's the meat to it? Like, what what does it start looking like? What does the afterlife look like that's different than Sheol?
2: Well, in the Jewish apocalyptic literature, you have descriptions of otherworldly spaces. And so, in a text like First Enoch, for example, you have someone being taken on a tour, and you have spaces where there's a distinction made between souls that live different kind of lives, and they go to different places. they're kind of like pits or or um, hollows <laughs> that these different four different types of souls dwell in. So you have in first Enoch and in other apocalyptic texts from this time this idea of a, what we call the differentiation of fates, which is just a fancy way of talking about different kinds of souls going different places. And this can be seen as continuous for the Jewish people. This is continuous with this idea of the tradition of the two ways, right? You live one kind of life and you live for a very long time. You live a different kind of life and you go down to Sheol too soon, right? But now the difference is in these apocalyptic texts, right? That that actually leads to different kinds of after death experiences, whereas the which, which of seems Sheol fair. Because everyone goes to
0: right. I mean, friend. I'm not being facetious, but that seems fair for that to happen because why would someone who leads a long righteous life wind up in the same place? Right.
2: And so, what you have in the in the Hellenistic period is under the pressures of the empire, you have the apocalyptic texts developing ideas of the afterlife that are both influenced by Greek and Roman ideas, right? So, this idea of differentiation of fates looks different from, but also not totally distinct from what we see in Plato, for example, right? In the Republic, there's this idea of, you know, the transmigration of souls and different souls that live different kinds of lives going to different spaces after death. And so you end up in Jewish apocalyptic literature starting to see overlap with some of these Greek, Greco-Roman ideas. And you also get this in an apocalyptic text that may, in some cases, be influenced by the pressure of living under Roman rule. So it's during this time period that we end up seeing early Christian authors who are deeply influenced by this apocalyptic literature invoking language that shares a heritage with both the Greco-Roman culture that they're a part of, the Hebrew Bible tradition of the two ways where you could you know, make life choices that lead to different outcomes. And then these Jewish apocalyptic texts. And all of this really funnels into what we have represented in some of the New Testament texts that talk about these different otherworldly spaces.
0: Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever.
1: We got our bushes in...
0: That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different.
1: There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary long after you graduate, that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for Normal People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener of the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People.
0: It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu.
1: So that so the New Testament, you would say, is participating in some way in this uh, differentiation of fates, uh, way of thinking, meaning you can make choices and I mean, you can make choices in this life that lead to different outcomes in the afterlife.
2: Yes, and I will. I do. I should say that it is. That is. A distinctive Megan Henning idea. <laughs>
0: that, <Okay.
1: laughs>
2: um, a lot of 20th century Bible scholarship, actually how I got interested in this topic is that I was um, reading some a uh, New Testament theology book by Rudolf Bultmann and he was writing it, you know, earlier in the 20th century and, and he was really keen to try and say, well, yeah, there's these texts in the New Testament that talk about Hades or Gehenna, but you know, those are really, the Hades texts are all, those are all, it's Greek and Roman ideas, and that's not really the true essential kernel of the New Testament. And I thought, well, wouldn't it be convenient if that was true? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that that started me down this road of thinking and noticing that most of the scholarship of the 20th century was a kind of a scholarly game of hot potato where different scholars are trying to pin the blame of hell on different people groups, basically. And I so I have really taken a different approach in my own work and said I, you know if Jesus if we know Jesus is using apocalyptic language in other places it's probably not fair to assume that somehow this apocalyptic language wasn't really he didn't really mean it. Yeah, um yeah. right right right. And instead it's probably more fruitful to be honest about what's there and say yeah there there's this there's this terminology about Gehenna and about Hades but What's happening by the end of the first century when the gospel authors are using this terminology is that they are really starting to develop an idea of a lively afterlife mm-hmm. in which there's rewards and there's punishments. And so, I do think that first century Christian texts that we call the New Testament do have the beginnings of an idea of hell. It's certainly not the developed idea that we think of, though, when we think of hell today, like people are always like, oh, do you study Satan? And I'm like, well, in the New Testament text, you really don't get a lot of Satan, right? There's not (laughs) so Mm -hmm. we think of hell as this really when we think of hell in the contemporary world, it looks more like what Dante described in his Inferno. And that work is really indebted to second to fourth century Christian ideas about hell that really take what's in the New Testament and
0: Amp it up, <laughs> yeah, times ten to say the least. Now, uh, Megan, you mentioned uh, Gehenna, mm-hmm. so uh, e- explain what that is and and what it means, <laughs> and that should take you three seconds, right? So, but yeah, you know, no that's tro- that's no a problem. concept that's normally not normally, but often translated as hell mm-hmm. in by by English translations, which is very unfortunate. But just you know, so what yeah. is it? What is it? What do we do with it?
2: Yeah. So Gehenna is itself a a reference to, and that term actually also occurs in the Hebrew Bible. When it's in the Hebrew Bible, it most likely refers to an actual, it it does refer to an actual valley, the Valley of Hinnom. It's a a valley that's associated specifically with idolatrous acts of non-Israelite peoples that are said to include child sacrifice. So it is, and it's also thought to be a place that, that, so this valley is in, and the Isaiah 66 gets specifically associated with the that imagery of people who have, who are not following the God of Israel and who are reaping the consequences of that, right? And it becomes a kind of, so the Valley of Gehenna or Gehenna becomes this kind of monument to the idea of there being consequences for not following God. But that idea of it being a physical place by the time Christians start referring to it in the New Testament texts has already started in um, apocalyptic literature to refer refer more generally to the idea of there being a kind of fiery place of punishment or um, a fiery space that would be a place where people were isolated for the things that they had done in their life.
0: Would that would that be an afterlife thing or or not?
2: Yeah, so in the apocalyptic literature, it it has already started to refer to. So that's the thing. So I I have heard many in my lifetime. I've heard many sermons where people will say, "Oh, you know, Gehenna was this trash heap and it was this place of fire." So the, that all that stuff about the garbage dump outside of Jerusalem there's no, um, there's been some articles published, there's no archaeological evidence for that. And, right. um, and it wasn't, it was not, it, it was really by the point that the New Testament was written, it was already kind of well-known as a monument to infidelity and then an afterlife space.
1: So, it already become known as a way of talking about the afterlife. Yeah. So,
2: that, that so, that's the thing that makes it, so it's, it's important, I do think it's important to recognize that the New Testament authors are not using one word for hell, they're, they are using Gehenna, they're using um, Hades, in one case they're using Tartarus, um, in Revelation they're using a lake of fire, right? There's all these different concepts that are in the New Testament text because they still don't have, they're still working this out. We have a bunch of different concepts being used to gesture towards the idea of Eternal punishment, and that's part of a early developing notion of eternal punishment.
0: So, okay, there, I, I like the way you put that. They're working it out, <laughs> yeah. which, because um, it's 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 sort of it's a newish idea, yeah, and it it's probably a bit flexible, mm-hmm. and it's used in different exactly. ways by different people. So we have this New Testament, which is supposed to be clear and tell us exactly what's what. But it's a little more complicated than that, it sounds
2: like. Yeah,
3: Uh, just a bit. (laughs) Just a bit. Hi, I'm Josh Edson from Titusville, Florida, and I'm one of the producers of this podcast. The Bible for Normal People is supported by listeners like me. And for as little as $1 a month, you too can be a part of bringing the only God-ordained podcast on the internet to other normal people around the world. Just head over to patreon.com slash the Bible for Normal People and select a tier. Amongst other things... Patreon supporters can unlock access to outtakes, photos, rant videos, online hangouts with Pete and Jared, and a Slack community that provides a safe space for supporters to wrestle with what the Bible is and what it means to us. If you can't support the podcast financially, you can still help by leaving a five star review on the podcast player of your choice. I'd like to take this time to mention some of our other producers, including Peter and Mary Wall, Mark, Leroy Prempe, Fred Anderson, Travis Jantz, Erwin DeVries, Jordan Wood, and Paul Mark. Thank you for your support. The Bible for Normal People wouldn't happen without you. And now, back to the podcast.
1: Well, I'm trying to, I'm trying to, I'm going down a few different parallel tracks, because on the one hand, we have this influence of Jewish apocalypticism, which, which by the New Testament is definitely taking on this afterlife flavor even if the concepts are still being thrown around, we're not exactly sure what to do with it. But earlier you said something that maybe is worth bringing back up, which was this method, this, uh, Mm -hmm. And you've mentioned a few times that in a lot of these stories, there's a journey to Hades Mm -hmm. and there's lessons learned. And it it reminds me kind of this, this dominant kind of meta metaphor of life is a journey Mm. and, and you're going down that path and you're learning lessons along the way. so, in, at first, I was excited about that because I was thinking, <laughs> oh, well, I've never heard that. Maybe mm-hmm. that's kind of what, what Jesus is doing here mm-hmm. in the New Testament to bring these up and talk about kind of life as a journey. There's a way of mm-hmm. going on these things that you're going to learn these lessons. But then there's definitely an influence of this apocalyptic yeah. afterlife as well. And I'm having a hard time putting those Fusing two thoughts together. Perfect.
2: So, the apocalyptic literature itself draws upon this idea of a journey or a tour. So the idea that you are being taken on a tour by a guide is used in, for example, First Enoch. That is an example of a Jewish apocalyptic Mm -hmm. text. So it's not just in the Greek and Roman tour literature, but also in the Jewish tours. And so we get this idea that, so both the gospel authors and the audience in the gospel of the gospel authors would have been aware of this idea of going on a tour of otherworldly spaces in order to learn something, whether they were familiar with it through exposure to Jewish apocalyptic ideas or through the more the broader um, Hellenistic curriculum of learning about. The afterlife on tours of Hades,
1: so-, so so maybe there's not like a clear line that we can draw between <laughs> this. Uh, you go on these tours and learn these lessons in these narratives, and the an actual historical or what I know, historical isn't even the right <laughs> word a meta- metaphysical Please. reality of this afterlife. Maybe that's a distinction we're trying to make that maybe wouldn't have fit exactly. the New Testament.
2: I agree. So, I think that that's a distinction that we we want to, that the text to answer that question, and I think the text is actually trying to answer a different set of questions. And the, okay. the set of questions <laughs> that I think Jesus and the gospel authors are trying to answer through these stories is – how should I live today?
0: Okay, so uh, yeah, that that sort of raises a question that I've been pondering here for the last few seconds as you were talking. But Jesus, let's talk about so Jesus. You weren't listening to? Her, is that what you said? I was listening <laughs> you were, and pondering. You were thinking <laughs> of what you
1: were going to say.
2: Listening, yes, ponderously.
0: <laughs> I, I, yes, thank you. I multi I multitask, but so did. Uh, this is one of these stupid modern questions. I'm trying not to ask it's a okay. modern question. But, so, G, Okay, so let's talk about Jesus. Did was Jesus thinking of, from what we can tell, right, from the world around him and what's developing at this moment, when Jesus says Gehenna, Mm -hmm. is he thinking of an afterlife place of punishment? Mm -hmm. Or is Jesus using the rhetoric of his tradition to motivate change in the people that he's talking to
2: the times where he uses the language whether it's Gehenna or Hades are contexts of ethical instruction so it's possible that people hearing this would have also thought of a metaphysical space but Mm -hmm. what I know for sure and and that is like since I don't have a telekinetic connection to the historical Jesus or his audience like I can guess that they might right. have thought that but I don't know. <laughs> but what I can tell from looking at the texts today is that they're using this language to try to persuade audiences to to behave in particular ways. So for example, you know, Matthew 25, right? is a place oh, where yeah. we see this language and it's quite clear that the whole story about the sheep and the goats has some pretty specific things right and and the question that gets asked well wait we didn't know we didn't know it was you fo- is followed with an answer of like very specific instructions about well you sh- you should do this for the least of these you should feed the hungry and clothe the naked and and, and tend to the sick right that's all very specific ethical instruction that then is also a callback to the Sermon on the Mount, which is another place where we get this language um, in Matthew's gospel as well. And so so there are multiple places where it's quite clear that there's the, the language of weeping and gnashing of teeth or the language of Hades or Gehenna is tied specifically to an ethical lesson. You get the same thing in Luke 16,
0: right? Which is where people get the idea from, if you're bad, you go to hell and are tortured forever.
2: Where do they get right? that
0: idea? No, no, they get they get it from that, yes. from a misreading, yes, let's say, exactly. of the intentionality of Gehenna <laughs> mm-hmm. or Hades. And right. uh, so, so uh, again, we're sort of back to, because I'm trying to wrap my heads around this, because this is sort of important, mm-hmm. I think. And I know uh, really important for people listening to this, too. The The... The rhetoric of Gehenna, Hades, it, it has a function – okay, let's put it this way. I really hope that if you call your brother an empty-headed idiot, as in the Sermon on the Mount or mm-hmm. – uh, if you if you're angry with your brother, if you hate him in your heart or something, you're going to hell forever mm-hmm. to burn. I hope that's not right. true. I I really hope Jesus isn't saying that. He doesn't seem to be saying that. No.
1: Well, well, I I have an, I have an interesting thing I, I want to test with you, Megan. Mm-hmm. And i i just I just came up with it ten seconds ago, so it's maybe not as brilliant as it seems right now, but the I, I just can't help but think back to Deuteronomy mm-hmm. And if we take it to that context and we have these you know 28 I think through 32 or something where we have the blessings and cursings, when we have these ethical pronouncements of how now shall you live mm-hmm. there tends to be some level of accountability. like there in the ancient world, I would say even in the modern world, we think of consequences and accountability mm-hmm. if you don't behave mm-hmm. these ways. And back then in the Deuteron- Deuteronomic texts, it would have been, there's a an oppressing army that will come and wipe you out as a people mm-hmm. group. And in the same way that we don't think today, if I disobey God, that somehow, well, there are some traditions that would still have this, but that somehow the enemy armies of an oppressing nation are going to come and wipe us mm-hmm. out. Like, that's not what we think of as the ethical... No. Conclusion right. of my misbehaving. Right. We don't expect it's for like as- the
2: earth to open up and for us to be smote and <laughs> the
1: <Right. laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And in the same way, maybe it, for me, that's an, an analogy to Pete what you're saying, mm-hmm. which is why then do we think no, no, no? But when Jesus says, "If you do wrong, you're going to hell forever." Why do we take that then as, like, the literal thing that will happen exactly. when we kind of have this other conte- context in the Old Testament where, no, it's, it's a it's a cultural way of talking about consequences of ethical misbehaving, mm-hmm. and Jesus is doing the same thing in an ap- apocalyptic way, and we have our own way of doing that. Mm-hmm. And so, it it does frame it for me. Is that, a, is that an appropriate yeah. analogy? Oh,
2: absolutely. Okay. And one of the things, I mean, what, what you were saying, too, about, I mean, so, the Deuteronomist is a great example right that we we read that and we have a sense of how how ancient audiences would read that and so to think about what's going on in the new testament text is equally appropriate to understand that jesus is using rhetoric of his time in order to to really bring home an ethical message for his audience and to get them to take it seriously and well, i mean one of the things i think that people misunderstand sometimes is they're saying well so you're saying it's just rhetoric and i'm saying no there's no such thing as just rhetoric. Rhetoric is actually really important, right? (laughs) You you use it Mm -hmm. when you really want to make a point and you want to make it clear and and well. But it also means that because it's not rhetoric that we use in the same way in the contemporary world, we have maximal opportunity to misunderstand it. I mean, one of the things, you know, if we think about, like you said, like if, if we think about the ethical commands that are tied to this in the New Testament, then the conclusion that we draw is that if there is a hell, we're all going because no one has upheld the entirety of that pronouncement. But if we think about this as rhetoric that Jesus is really quite serious about and trying to drive home, what we find is that the emphasis in these texts is really on care for the other and concern for the marginalized. And that theme even as the intensity of hell gets amped up in the early Christian period, in the tours of hell that come later, that theme is still carried forward. So even the earliest readers of these texts understood, on some level, that the real point here is about how you treat others.
0: Yeah, I, I, yeah, that, that's helpful. I'm I'm stuck on something Great. here though. I'm probably just <laughs> such a modern person. I don't get it. But uh, I'm tr- I'm trying to put myself in the space of ancient people and. To be persuaded by rhetoric, Mm -hmm. there has to be – maybe there doesn't. Maybe I just don't get it. But I would think there has to be some connection between what is said and – here's the modern word – reality. Yes. Otherwise, it's just – listen, you're just using a bunch of (laughs) hyped-up hyperbolic language Mm -hmm. here about fire and torture and whatever. But we all know – That's not another modern word true, right? So help me through that.
2: Yeah, good. So one of the things that ancient rhetoricians would have said about this is that rhetoric, visual rhetoric especially, only works if your audience can picture it in front of their own eyes. So you have to use language that's familiar. You know, if I start talking about something and you've never seen it before, you can't draw it up in your imagination, no matter how hard you try, right? Um, But it also has to have verisimilitude, or what I tell my students means truthiness, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, It has to resonate as true on some level. And so even if audiences could call up the image, they also had to understand or believe that it was somehow had some truth to it. Now, whether that is a metaphysical truth or whether that is an acknowledgement or an assent that... Yes, you know, the wicked have justice meted out to them in some way, ultimately. And yes, the righteous have justice meted out to them in some way, ultimately. You know, it's hard to know what the metaphysical commitment was for the audience. But for sure, on some level, if this rhetoric did work, and it, it seems to have worked for some time, there had to be some level of truth to it among the people using it. They had to have some sense that it was, um, that had what I would call verisimilitude or truthiness to it. But um, you also get someone like the ancient um, geographer Strabo who said, well, yeah, you know, the myths that we tell, because he was talking about education, and he said, yeah, the myths that we tell in education, it doesn't really matter if they're true or not. The point is that they persuade our students right and they can still have value in them even if we don't think that everything that is in the myths and he was talking about specifically about homer but you know even we, even if everything in the myths isn't true it still has a pedagogical value so i think there were different levels of commitment to the rhetoric
1: you know so there there's a there's there's a bit of a difference there between like I resonate with Aesop's fables because mm-hmm. I resonate with the wisdom of the point. Yes. And I don't need it to be historically accurate That's to true. get value out of it, mm-hmm. which feels different than here are these ethical frameworks and if you don't do them, here's something really bad that will happen to you. Don't worry if the really bad thing happened that will happen to you will actually happen to you or not. <laughs> right. Like that feels like a different. It feels like we're comparing apples and oranges. But But I also did want to mention that I think there's something to. I, I keep coming back to the idea that you said that this isn't really settled, so it's not it's a not. clear concept. And in a lot of ways, that actually helps helps the persuasion of it. Because I think of a concept like today in, in today's world, I think of the concept of karma, mm-hmm. um, where like a lot of modern Americans, I just know people that will like use it. And if I were to actually drill down and say like, what do you, like they they really are afraid of karma? Like that is something that persuades them. Mm-hmm. That like if I put good into the world, I'll get good back. If I put bad into the world, I get bad back. It's kind of like Deuteronomic theology over again. But, but when it, if I ask them to like drill down, like well, except, tell me the mechanics of karma. Like how does it actually, how does it actually happen? Um, especially if they don't believe in like a personal god or something who exacts this kind of justice. Right. They sort of it's a it's a fuzzy concept, and actually the fuzziness is what's more compelling about it. Because if you ask them to like break it down into the mechanics of well, exactly tell me how, if I do this good for someone, a good thing's going to happen to me later. Right. I don't understand. And so there's some way in which the ambiguity, I guess, yeah. of the mechanics of hell and dying forever and burning, it plays to the advantage here, I think, of the rhetoric.
2: Yes. There's no question that in the first century, this concept is being developed. So it is, it is definitely at its beginnings. And the more developed idea that we think of when we think of hell in the contemporary world is really an invention of late antiquity and um,
1: medieval Christianity. So, so, in some ways, it's impossible for us to understand hell as they would have because we already— It's really hard to unknow it. It's, mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. We already right. have all this stuff exactly. imported into it. That's us. exactly right.
0: All those right. vivid images and things like that, that's part of our reality. Exactly. Some that's what us. I would
2: call our visual yeah. vocabulary and what kind of—
0: Oh yeah, yeah. So, that's a great phrase. I'm stealing yeah, that. Yeah, well, good, I, I should thought. tell you, I
2: stole it from Quintilian. Um, okay. <laughs> but,
0: well, nobody nobody knows who that, knows who that is, yeah, so you know. <laughs> so I, I guess here's let me okay. Here's what I'm hearing: ancient people probably truly believe there are consequences for actions, and if they forgot that, they need, need to be reminded of it by people like Jesus or Paul or whoever, and the rhetoric of hell and Gehenna and Hades and all that, that's a very vivid way of expressing that, let's call it truth, or that reality, that there are consequences. What that's actually going to look like, who the heck knows. But it's a way of communicating to the people in ways they understand in these, their visual vocabulary they already have. And – that To me, that's like a, a really uh, important insight because it's just another example of what Jared was, was just sort of implying that context is very important, yeah. right? And we can't get into people's heads and we read these mm-hmm. texts and we right away bring them into our visual vocabulary, yeah. that which has been probably a distorted lens, yeah. right, for 1,500 years or so. And to get back into that investigation is maybe very healing for people who are just freaking out about, you know, my relative died and they're burning conscious. Well, you know, that's the thing, too. What what struck me early on as you started talking, Megan, when we're talking about, like, you know, where this notion of hell developed, along with that is really – Maybe a different kind of interest in afterlife in general, mm-hmm. and I think these things—it's rather obvious—but they go together, and you know that's something that preoccupies religious people typically, at least Christians. Absolutely. It does. Jews not as much, but Christians, I think, it really does. Like, what? Where do you go?
2: It's a big one. <laughs>
0: what do you do? <laughs> Let's see what the Bible says. Okay, bang bang. You know, there you have it, and the two ways. You know, mm-hmm. and and um, there's—I just, just think there's a lot at stake here for our own paideia, mm-hmm. our own education, our own training to to think about this maybe with fresh eyes and to admit that maybe a lot of our theologies have been distorted.
2: Yeah. And to reassess, if, if, Jesus, if this is rhetoric, if this is Jesus and early Christians using the visual vocabulary of their own time in order to persuade and educate those around them to behave in particular ways, if we want to think about what we can learn from that for the contemporary world— then we might need to ask ourselves, is this a lesson about what the afterlife is actually like, or is this a lesson about how we could use the visual vocabulary and the rhetorical tools of our contemporary world in order to bring life and healing uh-huh. and education to people as well?
0: Right. I appreciate the way you put that. We, we follow Jesus best by employing our own visual vocabulary to try to Affect something that it seems like Jesus was trying to affect and not copying the vocabulary and then distorting it. Exactly. Yeah. But what, okay, so what do we do? How do we tell people they're going to hell?
1: How do we say that? Or, or or have I missed the point entirely? Yeah, yeah. Pete, Pete missed the boat. Pete missed the boat. I think that's a yeah. great oh, you're, going my next book. you're going to Disney How World. You're going to Disney World. That's it. Tell people so.
2: they're going to hell. Okay. Um. You're, you're going
1: to a mall parking
0: lot. Do you want to spend your eternity you in a mall what parking Jesus lot? Jesus says, yeah. You're yeah. going to the mall.
1: Right,
2: right. Yeah, no. I think I think we do have to be creative. I mean, one of the things that was really troubling for me as I was starting to do this work, and I do work with my students on apocalyptic rhetoric in the contemporary world with film and movies and TV, is that given our ability to depict kind of like the most extreme violent situation we can possibly imagine on the screen, I think actually that the rhetoric of violence is done. I don't think that that is productive in the contemporary world in the same way that it might have been mm-hmm. in antiquity. And and I also think that we've learned in thousands of years what the also, what the kind of consequences for using that kind of rhetoric might be in a way that in the early period of the inception of this idea, that wasn't quite
3: as clear. Right.
2: So that's actually what my next project is about in some, in some sense, in terms of thinking about, okay, what, what, what are the other, what's kind of the, the dark side of this, um, this rhetoric as it gets developed. But the, in terms of your original question about you know what, how do we, how do we package this and think about this? I first of all I like to think about okay what are the ethical norms that are being communicated? So what, what are the things that are tied to this idea? And then how would I communicate those things persuasively in the contemporary world? And does that even get tied to the afterlife or does that get tied to other things that motivate people in the present world? Because certainly yeah, afterlife is a big one but probably I, I think mm-hmm. the last Pew survey maybe said 60% of the population believes in an afterlife. So, maybe there's something else.
1: Well, that's what I was thinking is, you know, as even just thinking through sermons that I've heard over the years and the dominant metaphors and ways of talking have have shifted and I think a lot of times, uh, now I hear the language of say like health. Mm. You know, like it, it, you know, if we don't if we don't do this, like think of the health of our community or the health of our marriage or the health of our. Mm-hmm. So like, go to health. Yeah. Right. Yeah. From hell just, to, you health. Go to health. <laughs> yeah. From hell to health. There you go. There's your tighter. There it is. Your You're welcome. You're welcome. You're welcome, Megan. Okay. 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 But I, but I think that is you know it is something that I, I do think that we intuitively if we pay attention to the language we use. I think as communities of faith, we intuitively do that we we pick it up and we drop off things that are no longer useful, and we pick up things that that resonate more and so that that 's just something mm-hmm. i 've observed is that language of health and natural consequences like you said it's it 's not always the metaphysical um you know if you don't then this will happen to you when you die it's more. It feels to me, and maybe it's just part of the faith communities that I'm mm-hmm. a part of, but it feels more immediate, it feels more naturalistic, it intuitive. feels more... Intuitive. Yeah, intuitive. Mm-hmm. Like
0: Not not a conscious deliberation we of we what to say. If don't take care of the
1: earth, it's not you're going to go to hell when you die, it's if you don't take care of the earth, we won't have an earth. Right. Um, Our children will <laughs> so,
2: not be able yeah. to enjoy the things that we enjoy. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think that's really interesting.
1: Um, mm. Well... Uh unfortunately, we are coming to the end of our time. We've been stretching it because it's so fascinating. We're trying to go <laughs> go go longer uh, here. But what you mentioned a project that you're currently working on. Maybe you can say a minute of that and, and where people can find you online if they want to continue to talk about hell with you or tell you that you're wrong. Excellent.
2: Yes. So you can find me online on Twitter and Facebook and Megan Henning. Um, my next project is I'm working on gender and disability in early Christian concepts of hell. The book is called Hell Hath No Fury and um, is about specifically how this violent language that gets developed in the later tours of hell in um, late antiquity and the early medieval period really runs with this first century Christian idea and then becomes what we know today from Dante as this torturous place. But it really ends up using gendered ideas of the body from antiquity to depict people as female and disabled in hell and has really serious consequences, I argue, for hmm. the way that we
1: think about bodies in the contemporary world. That's fascinating.
3: Well, wow. Yeah.
1: Awesome. Well, we may have to have you back on to just keep this conversation right, trucking along into the med- medieval period I would love at that. some point. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks so much, Megan, for coming on. Really appreciate Thank it. You.
0: Yeah. Thanks so
1: much. See ya. Great to talk to you. Bye. <laughs> Well, thanks everyone for joining in for another exciting episode yep. of The Bible for Normal People. Yeah, all about hell. Hey, folks, don't
0: forget the Pay What You Want course. Pay What You Want course. March 26th, 8.30 p.m. for one hour, Eastern Time, talking about how to read the Bible as an adult. We hope to see you there.
1: We'll see you next week for another episode of The Bible for Normal People, and we'll see you March 26th at 8.30 p.m. Absolutely. See See ya. Uh, before we get to that, just
0: introduce yourself to our readers. Give us a little bit of your background. They're listeners, not readers. Okay. We're going to start that over again, Dave, because <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what medium we're dealing with. Okay. Can we start all over again?
1: Yeah.
0: Megan? Okay. Let's start all over. Yeah. <laughs> I don't I've never made a mistake before, Jared.
1: How did this happen? Right. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. He's, he's short-circuiting kay. over there. I'm <laughs> going
0: to write a note to myself. They're <laughs> listeners, you idiot. They're listeners. Not. Okay. All right. Start again. Ready? Dave? <laughs> Dave, stop. I know you're laughing, Dave. I know you're laughing. So Okay.
2: Well, you know, it's it's Lent, so it's a good time to talk about health.
1: Yeah. Um
2: seasonally appropriate. I actually was talking to a friend in the coffee shop this morning and I told her, you know, Ash Wednesday and Good Friday were my favorite holidays growing up. And she's like, if I didn't know about your research, I would think you were so screwed up.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh gosh.